afraid of a global nuclear disaster? Or the likes of a Star Wars cosmic conflict? Are we on a countdown to the Battle of Armageddon? What does the future hold for our world? Have you tried to understand the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation only to be confused by all the symbols? These and many other amazing questions will be answered through this prophecy seminar. Yes, you can understand the books of Daniel and Revelation, and in the process, get to know God in a deeper way. Welcome to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel. Here is your host, Pastor David Price. Well, good evening, everyone. I would like to uh, welcome you to our Prophecy Seminar tonight, based on the book of Daniel, and we're up to Lesson 14. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, how privileged we are tonight to be able to open your amazing and powerful words. The book of God that you have given us to enlighten our minds and strengthen our walk with Jesus. Tonight, Father, we want to see Jesus lifted up high. We want to understand more of his beautiful and amazing character and show us all of these things. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Before we begin, I'd like to just outline where we're going. So the next three lessons, starting with tonight, which is Prophecy Seminar Lesson number 14, we're going to look at what is the sanctuary. Then in our next session in 15, we're going to look at Daniel's prediction of the judgment. And then in Prophecy Seminar session or lesson number 16 we're going to be looking at the judgment continuing so what are we going to learn tonight in lesson 14 how did god deal with sin in the old testament you know we have an amazing advantage in that we look back at the cross and we understand the plan of salvation but old testament people had to look forward to the uh, sacrifice of jesus and not all of them understood it and so that's why god set up the sanctuary system don't miss next week. I've got an amazing story to, sh to share with you. It's called The Good News and Bad News About the Judgment. It's absolutely fascinating, and I'll be able to share that towards the end of the lesson, one of my favorite stories. In session 16, which will be in two sessions time, we're going to look at how does God destroy sin forever, and we're going to look at a another time period in the bible that's in the book of revelation we're going to look at the thousand years and that's really really exciting so if you would like to uh, note where i'm starting i'm starting at the top of page two but tonight i'm going to pretty much ask you to just sit back and watch the screen you be the viewer i'll be the narrator if you've done your lesson because i've got so many um, beautiful photographs um, of the sanctuary i've also got video fly-throughs that I think will be, um, you know, exciting and also uh, instructive. So I'm just going to ask you to kick back, relax and enjoy our Prophecy Seminar Lesson 14 tonight, which is What is the Sanctuary? Last time in Lesson 13, we examined the longest time prophecy in the Bible stretching from 457 BC to AD 1844. In this prophecy, Daniel reviewed the various empires arising, Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, and the papal apostasy. 
he was asked how long it would take for this entire vision to be fulfilled. And he was told by the angel that it would be 2300 years and they would pass before the sanctuary would be cleansed or restored again to its rightful state. We discovered that there's an intimate connection between Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9. Daniel 9 gives us the intricate details that enable us to interpret the 2300 days. As part of this prophecy, God foretold the exact year of the baptism and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Since these events, which were foretold in scripture, were fulfilled exactly on time, we have every confidence that the final event of the 2300 days, the cleansing of the sanctuary, would also come at the predicted time, which was 1844. So in order to understand exactly what happened in 1844, however, one needs to understand the sanctuary. And that, of course, is our topic and our theme tonight. We're going to ask in our theme questions, why was there an Old Testament sanctuary? Secondly, how was it to be cleansed and restored? Thirdly, what did the courtyard phase of the ministry actually mean? Fourthly, what did the holy place stand for? And part five, what did the most holy place represent? Friends, in my uh, worship this morning, I was amazed as I'm working through the book of Psalms at five chapters a day to find this verse I want to share with you, and I've just put it in. In Psalm chapter 63, verse 2 in the New Living, King David writes the following, I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. What an absolutely beautiful reflection of the glory, the power, and the majesty of God. So this, of course, is the heavenly sanctuary that David's talking about. And tonight in Lesson 14, what is the sanctuary? We're going to be focusing on the earthly mainly, but we're also going to be talking about the heavenly as well. So as you have a look on the screen, we've got our first video fly through. And um, it might be just sort of interesting to notice in 3D the sanctuary layout in this digital um, video clip. And I'm so grateful to God that he let me secure this video clip nearly 20 years ago. And uh, you can't get this anymore. And I'm so privileged to be able to have these and share them with you tonight. Now, as you look at that, you're probably thinking, is that Old Testament sanctuary that tabernacle <clears throat> excuse me that tent of the meeting is that actually smaller than i think so let's get the dimensions so the outside of the walls were uh 150 by 75 feet but let's get it in meters so the old testament sanctuary length by width was 50 meters long and 25 meters wide i've got the feet there for those of you in the old in the old money in the most holy place it is a much smaller area in length by width. It's five meters by five meters. And I actually measured that out of my house today. And it's just a little bit um, smaller than my lounge room. So that just gives us a little bit of an understanding of the dimensions. And then the holy place length by width was um, 
you know, double that. So it was 10 metres by 5 metres or 30 feet by 15 feet. So I hope that just gives you a little bit of a heads up of the dimensions of the Old Testament sanctuary. Let's go to our first heading. We're on page two and question one. What is to be cleansed at the end of the 2,300 days? We go back to our favorite text, Daniel 8 and verse 14. And he, that's the angel Gabriel, said to me, Daniel, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. You know what? An amazing verse that packs so much information in there. And so the sanctuary had to be cleansed or restored at the end of the 2300 days, just as it had to be cleansed and restored at the end of every 12 months in the Jewish calendar. Question two, what was the purpose of the ancient Jewish sanctuary? Well, God told Moses, he said, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. You know, what I find absolutely amazing here is God wanted to dwell amongst his people. He's not a distant God. He's a loving God. And he wanted to live there with them. Since New Testament times, we don't have an actual sanctuary where God resides on the earth because through the power of the Holy Spirit, he exists everywhere. But we're told that the Holy Spirit wants to reside in us for our bodies are the what? Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let me share the note under two. In interpreting the sanctuary of Daniel 8.14, we must clearly understand what Daniel understood by the term sanctuary. So that leads us straight into question three. What was the sanctuary called in the Old Testament? Exodus 26 and verse one. So God told Moses, moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple and scarlet thread. With artistic designs of cherubim, you shall weave them. Cherubim, of course, as you know, is angels' friends. I have people tell me that God's not particular, that God's, you know, he accepts us just as we are and he, he doesn't really mind. But if you've ever studied uh, Exodus 25 to 40, the setup of the sanctuary, God is so, so detailed that that point of view is not right. So in terms of tabernacle, let's go to the Hebrew. What does that mean? The note at the bottom of the screen says, according to the Hebrew Bible, the tabernacle, the actual Hebrew word is mishkan. It means residence or dwelling place. So there's three, there's three names for uh, this building. Number one, the tabernacle. Number two, the sanctuary. And also it was called the tent of the meeting place. Well, I'm going to now ask, how are these colors a pattern of Jesus? Well, let's have a look. Firstly, the blue stood for Yahweh. That is Yahweh's name there, Y-H-V-H. The Hebrew has no vowels in it. From Yahweh, we get the name Jehovah. And the cord of blue was in the fringes of the high priest's robe to remind us that our God is holy and so are his commandments. Then God said to use blue thread and to use red or scarlet thread. That's the color for man. In between these two primary colors is purple. God and man were separated, so God had to have a mediator to bring man back to himself. So who's that mediator? Well, the 100% blue is God, and the 100% red is man or scarlet. And when you mix those two together, you get 
the color purple. That means Jesus is our mediator because he's 100% God and 100% man. And people try and tell me that God's not intricate, detailed, and an amazing uh, creator. This perfect picture of the Messiah is woven into the curtains and used many times in the tabernacle and the high priest garments to show us that the Messiah is the one who will bring us back to God. Purple is also the color of royalty. Jesus is the king of Israel. He's our high priest and he's made us to be also members of the royal priesthood. So I hope that extra information was helpful for you tonight in understanding the colors that God used in the Old Testament sanctuary or the tabernacle. The note says, since the Israelites were nomads in the Sinai desert at the time God gave the tabernacle to them, he designated a sanctuary for them that was portable and made of cloth like a tent. The marking of this sanctuary is described in intricate detail in Exodus chapters 25 to 40. The Old Testament sanctuary consisted of three sections. Firstly, as you can see on the diagram, there's the court or the courtyard. Then the inner place is the holy place, the first apartment of the earthly sanctuary, followed by the second apartment of the earthly sanctuary, which was the most holy place. Let's have a look now on the screen at the video cutout. This makes it easy to see the courtyard. Then we're looking there at the holy place and then behind it, the special place of God's presence, the most holy place. That's pretty fantastic, isn't it? When you think that uh, it was done 18 or 19 years ago. In the courtyard was the altar of burnt offering and the laver. In the holy place was the table of showbread, the seven branch candlestick and the altar of incense. In the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant containing the Ten Commandments. Above the Ark was the cover, which was called the mercy seat. That indicated that justice and mercy were blended together. And overlooking the mercy seat were two cherubim and between the cherubim was the Shekinah glory, the literal presence of God on earth. Then it says, please notice the diagram at the top of page three. Question four, when a person sinned in ancient Israel, what was he to bring to the sanctuary? And we go to the book of sacrifices, Leviticus chapter five and verse six. And he, that is the Israelite sinner, shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a kid of the goats as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin. So in ancient times, if you sinned, you had to bring a lamb or a kid to the Old Testament sanctuary. When an individual in ancient Israel sinned, he brought a lamb to the sanctuary. The sanctuary was the place where forgiveness of sins was obtained for people. The sinner confessed his sin over the lamb. Then the lamb was slain on the altar of burnt offering. The priest took the blood of the lamb and sprinkled it before the veil by the altar of incense, symbolically transferring the sin from the sinner to the lamb to the sanctuary. 
One point must be made very clear. The sanctuary is the place where the sinner found forgiveness of sin in the Old Testament. The work of the sanctuary dealt with the removal of sin. This work of sacrifice was performed for the sinner every day. Thus, it was known as the daily. You can see on the screen, it was called the daily service. It was also called the daily sacrifice. It was also known as the daily sin offering. Well, that takes us to heading number two. We're halfway down page three and question number five. How did Moses design the tabernacle? That's a good question. How did he come up with it? Exodus 25 and verse nine. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Exodus 25 verse 40, and see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. So God showed Moses in those 40 days and 40 nights up there when he got the Ten Commandments, a pattern of the earthly sanctuary that was to be um, constructed. So notice that the pattern comes from God. It never comes from man. And we're about to find out why. Moses did not originate the Old Testament sanctuary. He made it according to the pattern shown him by God while he was on Mount Sinai. Of what was the mosaic, of what was the mosaic sanctuary a pattern in Hebrews 8 and verse 5? In verse 4 of Hebrews 8, it talks about the priests who were doing the ministry in the earthly sanctuary. Verse 5, the priests who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So this is referring to the earthly sanctuary. They were copying what was going on in heaven as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For God said to Moses, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. What was the sanctuary of Moses of pattern of? It was a copy and a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary, the one in heaven. Moses was to make his sanctuary according to the pattern of the heavenly sanctuary. Well, that leads us to our next question about how many sanctuaries there actually are in scripture. We go to Hebrews um, chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. So here's quite a few scriptures. So please stay with me on the screen. We believe the writer of Hebrews is possibly the Apostle Paul. Verse 1. Paul writes, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. I'm going to pause there. Friends, I've actually heard people say such things as that Jesus is locked up in the heavenly sanctuary doing the work of intercession for us in this day of judgment. But friends, he's not locked up at all. What does it say now? This is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. He is right there. Or maybe I should say that God the Father is right there with him. And who is Jesus? He is a minister of the sanctuary. And he is a minister of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So the writer of Hebrews is stressing here that the heavenly sanctuary is the true one, it's the original, it's the, um, yeah, the true tabernacle, it's not a copy because the one on earth 
is a copy. Let's have a look at Hebrews 8 and verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that this one, referring to Jesus Christ, our heavenly high priest, also have something to offer. Verse 4. For if he, the heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. So Jesus did not need to be involved in the Old Testament heavenly sanctuary, for it was concerned with the what? The blood of animals. He was only concerned with fulfilling that by sharing his own blood, symbolically, that was shed at Calvary. Verse 5. For the Old Testament priests who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For God said to Moses, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So how many sanctuaries are there in scripture? I think we're pretty clear on that, aren't we? For Jesus was a minister of the heavenly sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, the one that is the original, which the Lord erected and not man. Hebrews clearly indicates there are two sanctuaries. There's an earthly and a heavenly, as you can see on the screen. The earthly sanctuary was made after the pattern of the heavenly sanctuary. And one sanctuary was pitched by the Lord, that's the heavenly, and the other by Moses, and that is the earthly. Would you come over to page four? We're at the top of page four, and we're heading into question eight. Well, who is the high priest of the heavenly sanctuary? I think we already know, but let's have a look at another verse in Hebrews 4.14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That is our profession of faith, our confession in Jesus, our commitment to him. Friends, Jesus Christ, when he... Uh, died on the cross and then was resurrected and ascended to heaven. He passed through the heavens on his way back to heaven. And so this is what the writer is referring to. And Jesus Christ is our great high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. Well, the earthly sanctuary had earthly priests who ministered according to the Old Testament ceremonial system. But in the heavenly sanctuary, there's only one priest. And he is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. He is our great high priest. Now, I just want to take a moment and uh, just recap on last week and remind you of Luke 3, 21 and 23. We covered this in session 13. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. Verse 23 of Luke 3. Now, Jesus himself began his ministry at about how old was he when he began to minister full time as the Messiah? He was 30 years of age. Now, Jesus began his work as our high priest age 30. But why? I think I explained to you last time that it was because the high priest had to be age 30. And that is found in Numbers 4, verse 3. You might like to write that down, write that in your lesson guide. The reference is Numbers chapter 4 and verse 3, where it says the priests had to be somewhere between the ages of 30 to 50 years before they could serve as high priests. Now, a linking verse is Mark 15, 38, that when 
Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Josephus says that curtain was four inches thick. It must have been torn by a heavenly hand, possibly the hand of an angel. And that tells us that no more earthly priests served after Jesus Christ died on the cross. And that the way into the most holy place is now through Jesus Christ's high priestly ministry in heaven. There's no more need for any earthly sanctuary or any earthly priesthood. Question nine, how many mediators are there between God and people in New Testament times? This is a very good question because today there are many mediators that come between mankind and God. Let's go to First Timothy chapter two and verse three. It says, for there is one God and one mediator, meaning high priest, between God and men. And that person is the man Christ Jesus. How many mediators are there between God and people? In New Testament times, there's one God and one mediator, Jesus Christ, our high priest, and he stands between God and us. I have an extra text not in your, uh, in your lesson guide, so you might like to write this down, John 14 and verse 6. Just write that down in the margin. Jesus claimed this, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. He didn't say no one comes to the Father except through one of the founders of one of the earthly religions. I could list off the names. Um, but he says that it is only through him. This is the exclusive claim of Christianity. The exclusive claim of Christianity is that there's only one true way. But friends, there's actually two ways. Have a look here. There are two paths and... Uh, You'll notice the one on the right, which says it's to paradise and the speed limit there is 75, which I think would be 75 miles an hour and quite fast. That one goes off a cliff because the broad road, the scripture says, leads to what? Destruction. But on the left is the narrow winding path up the hill called Calvary. There's only one way, and that one way is through Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way to God, I am the truth of God, and I am the life of God. The note says, in New Testament times, there's no need for an earthly priestly system. After Jesus died on the cross, the high priestly ministry of Jesus was inaugurated. It was begun. There is therefore no other mediator between people and God except Jesus Christ. Friends, have a look on the screen. I was very privileged in 2003 to be in the great city of Rome on our Reformation tour. And I just want to remind you that today people rely on earthly priests over the high priestly heavenly ministry of Jesus Christ. So any group that has an earthly priesthood denies or counterfeits or copies the sole ministry of Jesus Christ who stands today as our heavenly high priest. And so friends, this is what we were speaking about in Prophecy Seminar Lesson 13. The little horn power has set itself up as an authority. It set itself up as an earthly high priest, and that is the head of the Church of Rome, who is known as the Pope. That system is set up an earthly priesthood where people are regulated 
and people are uh, ministered to by an earthly priesthood and there is also an earthly sanctuary and that's called the Vatican in Rome. That is all a copy of where people should be directing their attention today and Jesus Christ is right there now doing a high priestly ministry as our heavenly high priest. He's doing a heavenly atonement to bring two hostile parties together and that is sinners with a holy God who loves them and wants them to be saved and that all takes place in the heavenly sanctuary. Our third heading tonight is Jesus fulfills the sanctuary service. The ministry of Jesus Christ fulfills this ancient Jewish sanctuary service. When the Old Testament sinner came to the sanctuary to receive forgiveness for his sins, he stood in front of the altar of burnt offering and confessed his sins over the lamb. In the most holy place in front of him were the Ten Commandments. Sin is the transgression of the law. The sinner had broken that law and he confessed his sin over the lamb. The lamb was slain and its blood spilt before the veil behind the altar of incense, symbolically transferring the sin from the sinner to the lamb to the sanctuary. Friends, can I just remind you tonight that we cannot bear our own sins and be saved. Even though we don't live in the Old Testament sanctuary service system, this is all to remind us that we're sinners, that every day we let God down. And when we sin, we actually break our relationship with Jesus. We draw away from him. We become ashamed. We, uh, we have a situation where we're fearful to come to him and pray and ask for forgiveness. And so, friends, if we continue to carry our own sins and don't put our sins on Jesus, the divine sacrifice, the Lamb of God, then we will be bear our own sins into the lake of fire. And that's just a very, very simple um, statement. Two elders stood in direct line between the sinner and the broken law, the altar of burnt offering and the altar of incense. The priest must perform a work at both of these altars to cleanse the sinner of his sins. Join me at the top of page five. Thereby the sinner was cleansed, forgiven and restored. The only way the sinner could be forgiven was as you can see on the screen, for the priest to perform the work at the altar of sacrifice. And that altar stood in direct line between the sinner and the broken law. Friends, I'm going to pause here and just add in a thought before we go on. Do I have to remind you that the law still stands because Jesus Christ died on the cross? That Jesus Christ actually had to die to uphold God's law? And that law is the foundation of his character. It shows us who he is, a moral God and a kind God, and it upholds the government. It is the ruler. It is the rule and authority for the universe. Friends, can you imagine if um, tomorrow the laws of this land were done away with and we were lawless? Everything would descend into chaos. Can you imagine how terrible it would be trying to drive your car around when everyone is doing their own rules? Friends, society's barely surviving with rules and regulations. 
And so I want you to reflect tonight that Jesus Christ died because the law of God could not be changed. If it could have been changed, then Jesus would not have had to die. Well, there's three parts of the sanctuary. As you can see on the screen, number one, the courtyard, number two, the holy place, and number three, the most holy place. These all indicate the three phases in the ministry of Jesus Christ. In other words, one phase of his ministry is symbolized by the courtyard, a second phase is symbolized by the holy place, and a third phase of his ministry is symbolized by the most holy place. Question 10. What phase of Christ's ministry is symbolized by the work of the courtyard with its altar of burnt offering? We go to two texts here, Hebrews 9.26 and John 1.29. The writer of Hebrews writes, He then, Jesus, would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Can I ask you a question? How many times was Jesus to be sacrificed? sacrificed you know some religions sacrifice jesus over and over again in the uh, in the mass in the eucharist what does scripture say it says that jesus suffered at the cross but now once at the end of the ages he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself it tells us that jesus only had to die once he must never be put in a situation where it is intimated that he dies again and again and again. John 1.29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Wow, what a blessed day that was when John saw Jesus coming down for baptism. What phase of Christ's ministry is symbolized by the work of the courtyard with its altar of burnt offering? Firstly, that Jesus has appeared on the cross to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And secondly, that he was the Lamb of God. And can you believe that his magnificent sacrifice actually takes away all the sins of the world, all those filthy, disgusting sins? You know, Jesus had your sin and my sin on him as he hung on the cross, but he didn't have any sin in him. Friends, what a glorious sacrifice that is. Jesus, by his death on Calvary's cross, fulfilled the Old Testament sanctuary's courtyard. He became the sinner's sacrifice. He became the Lamb of God. No longer do people need to offer a lamb to God when they sin. Jesus, the Lamb of God, has died for our sins the courtyard symbolizes christ's work of sacrifice and the altar of sacrifice symbolizes the death of jesus christ the sanctuary was god's pictorial presentation of the plan of salvation for israel so the old testament sanctuary the tabernacle the tent of the meeting was god's model it was his blackboard it was his whiteboard it was his powerpoint for teaching old testament people about the coming of the messiah jesus christ and how he would die as the lamb of god question 11 how does jesus fulfill the ministry of the holy place we go back to hebrews the great book chapter 9 and verse 24 for christ has not entered the holy places made with hands that's the earthly sanctuary which are copies of the true 
but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Can I just ask you a question based on this verse? Here's the question. Where did he go? What is he doing? So, friends, I'm going to ask you to ask your Christian friends, where is Jesus Christ residing right now and what is he doing? And I'm pretty sure I can tell you what they'll say. They'll say, well, um, uh, I think he's supposed to come back in a second coming, but I, I don't actually know. I guess he's in heaven. I don't know where he is or what he's doing, but I don't know. Friends, we know. The Bible tells us where Jesus Christ is. He's ministering in the heavenly sanctuary, symbolically offering the blood of his sacrifice that you and I might have our sins forgiven by this great plan of atonement, this great redemption. Let's go to the answer. How does Jesus fulfill the ministry of the holy place? For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which is the earthly sanctuary, but he went into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Again, we're assured that God the Father is there. The throne is right there. And it's uh, right there with the heavenly sanctuary. Look at this beautiful illustration by the Australian artist um, based in Port Macquarie, Phil Mackay. Upon his ascension, Jesus entered into the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary where he intercedes for us. Hebrews 9.24 says that he appears in the presence of God for us. The work of the holy place symbolizes Christ's work of perfect intercession. The altar of incense in the holy place represents Christ's life of perfect righteousness. His perfect life is added as precious incense to the prayers of the saints as they ascend into heaven. See Revelation 8. 3 and 4, and I'm going to share that with you in a moment. And then it says, now look at the diagram below. Now, I'm going to do something better than that diagram below. So I'm going to ask you to turn the page. And uh, no, actually, I might get you to stay at the bottom of page 5, and maybe you'd like to write in a few of the texts that I'm going to share with you. I'm going to show you how Jesus is prefigured in the Old Testament sanctuary. So you might like to write some of these texts down. But please look at the screen and... Uh, Let's go through this video fly through. Have a look on the screen. Jesus Christ in his role as our eternally great high priest is the one symbolized by all the Old Testament sanctuary symbols and ceremonies. Four, the human priest symbolized access to God through Jesus Christ. The altar of blood sacrifice symbolized reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. The golden candlestick symbolized enlightenment from God through Jesus Christ. The table of showbread symbolized sustenance from God through Jesus Christ. The altar of incense symbolized the continual fragrance of Christ's intercession before God the Father. The ark and the law symbolized righteousness before God through Jesus Christ. And the mercy seat you're looking at right now symbolized acceptance with God through Jesus Christ. Friends, continue to look at the screen. We're not going back to the lesson for a few minutes. 
In Psalm 77, 13, and as I'm reading through the Psalms, I'm reminded how well David knew his God and how well David knew where God dwelt. And he said, your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. What did David actually mean by that? Friends, <clears throat> David had prophetic and messianic understanding that the Son of God would come and die, that God will provide a lamb for the sacrifice. So let's go into the courtyard. Let's go into the holy place and let's go into the most holy place and understand how can we find Jesus in the Old Testament sanctuary? How do we find Jesus in the courtyard? Notice the two pieces of furniture there. I'm going to refer firstly to the altar of burnt offering and then the laver where you can see the water. The altar of burnt offering is signified by Hebrews 9.22, which says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. God has the system set up that sin can only be forgiven by the shedding of blood, and it has to be divine blood. It can't be the blood of an angel. So the altar of burnt offering represents the death of Jesus Christ. Now, what I find absolutely amazing is that some people have suggested to me that when Jesus died on the cross, everything for our salvation was done, finished, and over. So let me ask a question to you when we think about that. Was the altar of burnt offering in the Old Testament sanctuary the beginning of the Old Testament sanctuary service or the end of the Old Testament sanctuary service? Well, after you've done your lesson study, I think you know the answer. It's quite obvious, isn't it? That the lamb, the goat, the animal was slain and its blood was connected, collected into a bowl and then its body was burned on the altar of burnt offering. This was the beginning of the transference of blood representing sin into the Old Testament sanctuary. And so this is the beginning of the Old Testament sanctuary service. It's certainly not the end. The priests would then come over and wash their hands in the laver. There's two texts I'd like to bring up here to tell us how do we find Jesus in the laver. When Jesus had been baptized, he came up immediately from the water. That's Matthew 3.16. And Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart, a full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with what? Pure water. Jesus is the water of life. Jesus' baptism represents our cleansing from sin. And so we find Jesus not only in the altar of burnt offering, where he died on the cross, but we find Jesus here at his baptism is represented by the laver. The priests would have to come up. Their hands would be sticky with the blood. The blood would start to smell and it would become rancid. Friends, the laver represents Jesus cleansing us from all our sins and we do that in the foot washing service that we call the communion service or the lord's supper let's now move into the first apartment of the old testament sanctuary the tabernacle the tent of the meeting and in the sec in the first apartment or the second phase of jesus um, high priestly ministry how do we find jesus in the holy place notice the three implements we turn left to the seven golden candlesticks, we turn right to the table of showbread and straight ahead is the altar of incense. Friends, in John 8, 12, Jesus said some beautiful and remarkable words. 
he said, for I am the light of the world. And he spoke about not walking in darkness. When Jesus came to this world, it was a very, very dark and wicked world, just like it is today. And so Jesus reminds us in this beautiful uh, seven lit menorah, the seven golden candlesticks, that he is actually still the light of the world. How fantastic is that? And then on the right is the table of showbread. Jesus said in John 6, 48 and 51, I am the living bread. I am the manna which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Friends, Jesus is the bread of life. He is that manna that came down from heaven. He sustains us. And I want to encourage all of you to at least read one chapter of God's word a day. I know some of you are reading a chapter in the morning and some of you are reading a chapter at night. Friends, I want to tell you that when you feed on God's word, he gives you power. He gives you knowledge. He gives you wisdom. He gives you a glorious character that reflects the light of Jesus Christ to this sin-filled, suffering world. Friends, I want to tell you, if you just look around what's happening to us at the moment, Jesus will have to come back very, very soon. We are in major trouble. The problems of this world are not getting sorted out. And I want to tell you that things are going to get much worse. We now move to the altar of incense. This is directly in front of the beautiful veil, the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place. I said we're going to look up Revelation 8, 3 and 4, and we are. Then another angel, John the Revelator, wrote, had a golden censer and he came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the what? The prayers of all the saints. Incense stands for the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before god from the angel's hand so how do we find jesus in the altar of incense friends jesus receives the prayers of the saints which spiral up to heaven in fact that um smoke and that incense would spiral up and go over the top of the curtain, the veil, and into the most holy place, showing that God hears and God answers our prayers. Amen. Well, let's move now through the curtain into the most holy place. Can we find Jesus in the most holy place of the earthly and the heavenly sanctuary? The word is absolutely we can. In fact, in Hebrews 10, 19 and 20, we won't look up Matthew 27, 51, which speaks about the veil being torn. But in Hebrews 10, 19 and 20, we read this. Therefore, brethren and sisters and children, having boldness to enter the holiest, another name for the most holy place, the holiest, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he, Jesus, consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh friends we find jesus in the most holy place because his body was torn in two on the cross he had a a spear shoved in that went right up into his heart and we're told that blood and water flowed out that's how the roman soldiers check whether jesus was dead or not or whether they have to break his legs and then he would die of asphyxiation 
friends, Jesus was represented by the curtain or veil that was torn in the temple. Remember, the lamb ran away. The knife dropped out of the nerveless hand of the earthly high priest because the Shekinah glory was about to leave the earthly sanctuary just after Jesus died. When did Jesus die on that Good Friday afternoon? Would you believe that it actually was the time of the evening sacrifice around three o'clock on that so-called Good Friday afternoon? Well, friends, what do we find here? In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, well, by grace, for by grace he is saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. So friends, what do we note here? This is the seat of Jesus' mercy and grace. And he offers us mercy and grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that is not even of ourselves. The mercy and the faith and the grace all come from Jesus Christ. And we find Jesus here in the Shekinah glory. Friends, when the earthly sanctuary was uh, dedicated, to the Lord in Exodus 40, 34 and 35. The Shekinah glory, remember Jesus was there, God was there in the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day and that cloud came in and filled the sanctuary with the Shekinah glory of God. Jesus is that Shekinah glory, the presence of the living God. It would be so bright that we would be blinded. We would not even be able to look at it. Well, friends, what about the Ten Commandments? Where do they reside? Would you be surprised to find out where they are? Jesus came to live out and fulfill the law. In Matthew 5 and verse 17, he said twice, Think not that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I've not come to destroy it, but fulfill it. I'm quoting Matthew 5, 17. Jesus came to live out and fulfill the law. So friends, when we look at this beautiful Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Agreement between God and man, notice there that Jesus stands above his law because the Ten Commandments are in the Ark of the Covenant, the golden box. So what is between Jesus and the law? What is the name of the place on top of the golden box? You already know the answer, don't you? It is the mercy seat. Friends, are you glad tonight that between Jesus and his law stands his mercy. Let's call on the name of the Lord. Let's call on the mercy of the Lord that all our sins are forgiven and put under the blood of Jesus. Well, friends, we need to know where the Ten Commandments are today because there's no earthly sanctuary. There's no record of what happened to the earthly Ten Commandments. We go to Revelation eleven nineteen. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant. This is the golden box. The King James calls it the ark of his testament. The testament is the testimony. It's God's witness of the ten words of God, the ten commandments. So the ark of his covenant, or the ten commandments, were seen in the temple. Friends, were they? Where? Where were they? Well, friends, this is the amazing thing. If you have a look on the screen. The Ten Commandments are in heaven. They reside in this Ark of the Covenant, this golden box. And people say, no, Pastor, you don't understand. The Ten Commandments are done away with. They were done away with at the cross. And the Fourth Commandment about the Sabbath, that's been done away with as well. That's finished. 
with the Jews. You see, we now worship on Sunday, the day of the sun, Sunday in honour of the resurrection. Friends, I want to tell you that they, those might be nice sentiments, but really they're rebellion against God. God's law is so important that if he gave a copy to us on planet Earth, that there is the original law of God in heaven. It resides in the Ark of the Covenant. And you know what? Guess what? A fourth commandment, the seventh day Sabbath is still there. Why is it still there? Because in Isaiah 66, 22 and 23, we will keep the Sabbath where? That's right. We'll keep the Sabbath in heaven. All right, I'm at the top of page six. I want you to stay on the screen as I read to you the note at the top of page six. The courtyard represents Christ's work of sacrifice. The holy place is work of intercession. The altar of sacrifice represents the death of Christ. The altar of incense, the life of Christ. Again, notice that the two altars stood in direct line between the sinner and the broken law. What we actually see is that Jesus Christ stands between the sinner and the broken law. The sinner is reconciled to God through the death of Christ and saved by his life. Friends, do you remember I asked you at the beginning, how is God's way shown in the sanctuary? How is God's way shown in the sanctuary? Friends, his way or his plan of salvation is shown via the life and the death of his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is also our resurrected high priest. Let all the people say, <laughs> Amen, Amen, Amen. Question 12. How does the Apostle Paul indicate that individuals are restored to a right relationship with God? We go to Romans 5 and verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So how does the Apostle Paul indicate that individuals are restored to a right relationship with God? We are made right with God through the death of his son. We are saved by his life. These two aspects of the ministry of Christ as foretold in the sanctuary have been fulfilled by Jesus. He's the only one who can fully restore a person to a right relationship with God. Let's go to our fourth heading tonight, the Day of Atonement. We're halfway down page six. While the work in the courtyard and the holy place was performed every day, the work of the most holy place was performed only once a year. Thus, while the former was known as the daily, the latter was known as the yearly. The work of the Day of Atonement in the Most Holy Place symbolizes the third and final phase of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Let us examine the events of this, the most solemn day in the life of ancient Israel. I think this is the most fascinating part in this last section of our study in uh, Lesson 14 right now. Question 13. What happened at the sanctuary on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, 29 and 13? God said to Moses, this shall be a statute. This will be a law forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all. Whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you. 
to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. There's our answer. The priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you. Let me share with you the note. The purpose of the Day of Atonement was to cleanse both sinner and sanctuary. The cleansing of the sanctuary was achieved through the work of the most holy place. How many goats were chosen on the Day of Atonement? Leviticus 16 and verse 5. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. And so I'm sure that you're calling out to me right now. There are two goats that were chosen on the Day of Atonement. So question 15 asks the obvious question. Who were the two goats for? We go to Leviticus 16.8. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Who were the two goats for? One was dedicated to the Lord. The other one was called the scapegoat. The note says one goat was chosen to be offered to the Lord. The other was to be a scapegoat, or as the margin reads, it was for Azazel. Azazel was another name for Satan, who we called Satan. Thus, on this particular day, two goats were chosen, one for the Lord and one to represent Satan. Question 16, what happened to the Lord's goat in Leviticus 16 and verse 9? And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. What happened to the Lord's goat? It had to be offered as a sin offering. Friends, I want you to be totally clear here that of the two goats, the first goat that actually died for the sins of the people was the Lord's goat. And it was dispatched. It was killed. Its blood was shed and taken in to the sanctuary. That's really important before anything was done with the second goat, which stood for and represented Satan. The note says the Lord's goat was sacrificed on the altar of burnt offering. Question 17. Where did the priest sprinkle the blood of the Lord's goat? We go to Leviticus 16 and verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. The mercy seat was located in the most holy place. Have a look on the screen. Please notice that this is the one time each year when the high priest went into the holy of holies. In other words, the most holy place, also known as the holy of holies. Rather than sprinkle this blood on the altar of incense, this blood was actually sprinkled on the mercy seat and this blood was from the Lord's goat who'd made an atonement for all the people of Israel on that one day in the year called the Day of Atonement. Question 18, the sprinkling of the blood of the Lord's goat on the mercy seat was to make atonement. But for what part of the sanctuary? Leviticus 16, 16. We're looking at the very next verse. God said to Moses, so he shall make atonement for the holy place. What does atonement mean? Friends, atonement means, very simply, two hostile parties that are brought together in reconciliation. 
God and sinners can only be brought together through the blood and the mercy and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the priest would make an atonement for the holy place. Note again that the high priest is in the most holy place, but he's making an atonement for the holy place where all the blood was taken through the year. Imagine the mess, imagine the smell, and imagine the defilement of all that blood dried in the holy place. Question 19 is obvious, isn't it? Why does the holy place need to be cleansed? Leviticus 16, 16. So the priest shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness, meaning the sins of the children of Israel, and because of their transgressions for all their sins, their uncleanness and their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, there's another name for the sanctuary, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Friends, the uncleanness represents the despicable wickedness of our sinful hearts and the things that people do based on wickedness and evil. Because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of the transgressions for all their sins, that's why the holy place needed to be cleansed. And it was done once a year on the Day of Atonement. The reason the high priest went into the most holy place was to cleanse the holy place because of all the sins of the children of Israel that have been transferred there all year long through the work of the holy place. All right. The next question, which is the second last question, is very, very important. Please stay with me for this. This is really, really important. And this is something that often people really misunderstand. Question 20, what happened to the live goat when the work of cleansing the sanctuary was complete? That means that after the Lord's goat was sacrificed and his blood taken into the sanctuary, what happened to the goat that represented Satan? Very good question. Let's understand it. We go to Leviticus 16, 20 and 21. And when the priest has made an end of atoning for what? The holy place and the people, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring then the what? The live goat. Friends, the live goat is the scapegoat. If you don't know what the scapegoat is, maybe we can add an E to it. It is the E scapegoat. So friends, years ago on farms and at abattoirs, a scapegoat was trained to lead sheep, goats, and cattle in a certain way. And so at an abattoir, a goat would be released. It would run up the race, and then it would be shifted off around the back of the abattoir where it would be fed and nurtured and looked after. And that's why it ran up the race for the food. But the other animals that followed the scapegoat or the escape goat would be led to their death. And when the priest has made an end of atoning for the holy place, so all the work of atonement's finished, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Verse 21 of Leviticus 16. Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the live goat and shall send it away into the where? The wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. What happened to the live goat, the goat that represents Satan, when the work of cleansing the sanctuary was complete? Friends, the sins that were removed from the sanctuary were confessed over him and he was sent away into the wilderness. I'm going to share with you the note, but please look at the screen. 
The note says, please note that the live goat or the scapegoat was never, ever slain. Have you got that? It was never, ever slain. It wasn't a sin sacrifice, but only enters the picture when the work of the sanctuary is complete. This demonstrates to Israel that Satan is finally responsible for sin. All right, I'm going to stop there and I'm going to give you a illustration because some people really misunderstand what this is all about. I want you to imagine that you are burglarized and you hit an intruder with an object from under your bed over the head. You're then charged by the police for assaulting him, but the burglar actually started at all, you argue. Should the burglar get off scot-free? No, he started it. He's responsible and so is Satan. Maybe I can say that again on the screen. So here's an illustration explaining the role of the scapegoat. What if a robber breaks into your house and you clobber him? Then the police charge you with assault. Does that mean the robber gets off free? No. Why? Well, because he started it. He broke into your house. And if he hadn't broken into your house, you wouldn't have assaulted him. The same is true of Satan. The scapegoat or the e-scapegoat bears responsibility for the origination of sin, which Satan began in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. He's not bearing the responsibility for the sin. And so the scapegoat bears responsibility for the origination of sin, not the eradication or forgiveness of sin. This is done exclusively and only by the Lord's goat. I go back to the note. This removal of sin from the sanctuary is the final act of the sanctuary service. Now is shown that Satan is the responsible agent in sin. Notice that Satan's goat is never slain. Now you can see this on the screen. Here is a picture, and this is from Wikipedia, of the scapegoat by William Holman Hunt in 1854. Notice the scapegoat is never slain. He's taken out to the wilderness, and his name, Azazel, means the goat that was sent out or away from the camp. He's never a blood sacrifice. He's led into the wilderness because some of you already know in Revelation chapter 20, how long is Satan left in the wilderness? The Bible says that he is chained up for 1,000 years. And so this Old Testament model of the Old Testament sanctuary shows that Satan bears responsibility for starting sin. Jesus took the responsibility for ending the sin problem. Notice on the screen, we have in the top half of the screen, we have the scapegoat and the Lord's goat. The Lord's goat died for the sins of the people and his blood was taken into the sanctuary. The bottom half of the screen, we have the scapegoat. He was never slain. He was led out alive and he was taken out of the camp to perish eventually in the wilderness. But he was never sacrificed and he was never slain. I go back to the note on page seven under question 20. Only Christ bears the penalty for sin. I hope you've underlined that. In order for Christ to remove sin from the sanctuary, a work of judgment was needed. That is why this service in ancient Israel was known as the Day of Judgment. It was the most solemn day in the history of Israel because the Israelites knew that their sins were being removed from the sanctuary. I'm going to pause there to give you some 
extra information. Please look on the screen. A glance at a map of Palestine reveals that the wilderness of Judea lies only a few miles away from Jerusalem. On the eastern slope of the main divide and extends right down to the Dead Sea. So friends, the wilderness of Judea, as you can see there in the orange desert area, was on the eastern side of Jerusalem. Now, did you know that Jesus and John the Baptist lived in this wilderness of Judea for a period? Both of them did. And it was also the haunt of jackals. It was the haunt of the night hag. It was a haunt of demons and evil spirits, one of which was named Azazel, which, of course, is another name for Satan. And those of you who know anything about rock music know that the goat is always associated with Satan. Goat's head soup, rolling stones, etc., etc. We won't go into that. So what was the point of sending off the people's sins into the wilderness? The action toward Israel, a basically important fact about the nature of God. You see, the sacrifice of the one goat for the Lord assured the worshipper that God does indeed forgive sins. Amen. But forgiveness does not conclude the matter. The effect of our sins remains even when we've been forgiven. God may forgive us even if we kill a man, but God's forgiveness does not bring the dead man back to life. A parent may be forgiven for actual cruelty to his child, but the child may carry the scar of that cruelty on his soul to the end of his days. The result of sin remains. It is still there as part of God's universe. God may cast the sin behind his back in Isaiah 38, 17, but its effect is still there. You see, friends, the point I'm trying to make tonight is the idea that sin is not really important because God can forgive the sinner is not a biblical idea. Israel used to speak of the wilderness of Judea as being behind God's back where the goat for Azazel was sent. But it still represents that mystery of chaos which was there in the beginning when God began to create the heavens and the earth. The chaos is still with us today even though it is still behind God's back. So friends, the scapegoat took the sins out of the sanctuary but they or it was still hanging around until the real day of judgment the second coming of Christ would come. He took the responsibility for beginning the process of sin in the Garden of Eden. That was the role of the scapegoat. I'm back at the bottom of page seven. The sanctuary is symbolized for us three phases in the ministry of Christ. Please look at the screen. Number one, his work of sacrifice completed on the cross. Number two, his work of intercession begun when he ascended into heaven and sat down on the right hand of God and continuing until he comes the second time. Three, his work of final judgment, dealing with the removal of sin. This is symbolized by the work of the most holy place, the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. Thus, the cleansing of the sanctuary refers to Christ's final work of judgment in the heavenly sanctuary. Question 21, when does Christ perform this final phase of his ministry, the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary? Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. That's where we started our study tonight. At the end of the 2,300 days, or in 1844, Christ began that final phase of his ministry, the judgment. This judgment must occur before the second coming of Christ for three good reasons. Number one, it's only logical that judgment occur before Jesus Christ comes back, because when he comes, he divides the sheep from the goats, Matthew 25, 31, 34. 
How could Christ perform judgment after he'd already come and taken people to heaven? Number two, in the day of atonement service in the ancient Jewish sanctuary, if someone happened to remember some sin that he'd not confessed, he could still bring that sin to the sanctuary on the day of atonement and it could be sent into the sanctuary and removed that very day, Leviticus 16, 4 and 23 to 25. This indicates that grace was still to be available to the sinner while Christ's final phase of ministry was going on. Number three, at the end of the work of the Day of Atonement, the live goat was sent into the wilderness. Later, we'll study in Revelation 20 where we will discover that Satan will be sent into the wilderness for 1,000 years following the second coming of Jesus Christ. The pre-advent judgment is all over when Satan is sent into the wilderness. And lesson 15 will give you greater details of this pre-advent judgment that began in 1844. Thus, since 1844, Christ has been conducting the final phase of his ministry as taught in the ancient Jewish sanctuary. His work of final judgment, while Christ conducts the judgment, he still intercedes for us. He still continues the work of the holy place, even while he conducts the final judgment. Praise God, our high priest is not only our judge, but also our intercessor. He, Jesus Christ, stands for you, he stands for me, and he stands for us. Let all the people say, Amen. Friends, I'm asking you tonight, are you happy that God has provided this wonderful plan of salvation that was so beautifully pictured in the ancient sanctuary service? And I hope, like me, you're right in there. Yes, I am. I hope tonight that you have now understood what Psalm 77.13 meant when David said, Thy way, O God, is found in the sanctuary. God's way is found in the sanctuary. What way? The way of salvation. Why well, was there an Old Testament sanctuary? To help God's Old Testament people understand how to be forgiven and how to deal with sin. How was it to be cleansed? By a yearly day of judgment. Yom Kippur, it was called, the day of judgment. And what did the courtyard phase of Christ's ministry mean? It represented Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. Number four, what did the holy place mean? This represented Jesus' ministry of intercession for us as our high priest. And what did the most holy place mean? This represents the real end of sins and the final executive judgment that we will learn about in lessons 15 and 16. Thank you so much for your quiz envelopes that you send in to me. It's best if you send them tonight when I go through and mark the roll. So thank you for doing that and keeping it all at one time. I have two response questions tonight. If it's clear to you from this lesson that since 1844, Jesus Christ has been ministering in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary and that he's conducting the pre-advent judgment, would you place a tick in box number one? Number two, is it your desire that Jesus Christ forgive your sins tonight through his ministry in the heavenly sanctuary? Please tick box number two. Our quiz questions tonight are very straightforward. There are two of one and three of the other, and I can't give you any more hints than that. Let's go to question one. Thanks for writing down the words either true or false. The Old Testament sanctuary has no meaning for the Christian today. I don't think that's a hard question, so I'll move on to question two, true or false. The three parts of the Old Testament sanctuary show three phases of Jesus Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary, true or false. 
If you know the answer to question two, you'll know the answer to question one. Number three, the sanctuary represents Christ's work of sacrifice, intercession and final judgment, true or false? Number four, according to Daniel 8.14, the pre-advent judgment began in 1844 at the end of the 2300 days, true or false? Number five, the use of the scapegoat or the scapegoat in Leviticus 16 indicates that Satan saves God's people from their sins. True or false? All right, well, that's our quiz tonight. They're all pretty straightforward. The answer to question number one is, can I hear you calling out? Yes, it's false. The Old Testament sanctuary was loaded full of meaning, which answers question two as true. There were three phases. Question three, the three phases were sacrifice, intercession, and final judgment. That is true. Question four, yes, we are living in the time of the pre-advent judgment right now. That's why it's right for all of you to get right with God and for me to get my life right with God. We are living in the day of judgment. The next thing to happen after some more uh, worldwide events in the book of Revelation that shares with us is the second coming of Jesus Christ. We will be the generation who see Jesus Christ come back. Amen, amen, amen. That's true. And finally, the use of the scapegoat in Leviticus 16 indicates that Satan saves God's people from their sins. That's a horrific thought. The answer is no. False. No blood was ever shed from that uh, live goat. It was never sacrificed. It bore sins away in sense of the responsibility for sin. It was not a sin bearer, but shows that Satan is the originator of all sin, as in Genesis chapter 3. Well, in our wall of truth, we learn tonight from Daniel 8 that Jesus Christ is our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary, and that's where he is right now. We know where Jesus is. He's in heaven, in the heavenly sanctuary, and we know that he's forgiving sins, and soon that work will finish. He moves from the wicked. Sorry, he, he starts with God's people first. First um, Peter 4.17, the judgment begins at the house of God. Then he moves to those who aren't Christians, and then he finishes the work as he's given everyone as much time as he can, and then smoke fills the temple, Revelation 15, and Jesus returns to planet Earth. Please take some time out to prepare lesson number 15, and I want to thank you for being with us tonight. Let us pray. Ah, oh, gracious Heavenly Father, what an amazing uh, model you've given us in the Old Testament sanctuary. In that Old Testament sanctuary, Father, we see the character of God. We see your character of love. We see Jesus as the light of the world, the bread of heaven. We see Jesus giving his life in the altar of burnt offering. We see his baptism in the laver and we see Jesus in the law, protecting us and guiding us and guarding us from the harm and the radiation sickness of sin. Tonight, we give you all the praise, the honor, and the glory for giving us the Holy Spirit to take away these thoughts, to pray over them, to study more and learn more about you. So I ask a blessing on all who will hear this message and will follow it. In Jesus' powerful name, I ask it. Amen. been listening to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel with Pastor David Price. For more information about this series, you can visit the YouTube page, True Blue SDA 
all one word. That's True Blue SDA. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.